nice to be back for season two of G Credit. You were the one who suggested fashion, well, more specifically, prep, preppy fashion. Immediately when you said fashion, I was worried because as anyone who knows me will know, I'm arguably the least fashionable person that's ever walked this earth. So what is it about fashion and prep? Where did you hear about this uh, Jewish involvement in the whole concept? I think the key there is prep. We're already using the slang, but I guess it's preppy fashion, which is hard to define, but I guess it's the clothes of the kind of waspy elite, transatlantic waspy elite. So I guess in the UK, it's what we associate with a kind of Sloan Ranger, maybe people in red trousers walking around uh, Chelsea and looking down at us. But in America, I think it's where it's kind of most potent is the look of Ivy League kind of fashion which if you distill it, it kind of borrows a bit from British universities, Oxbridge universities, and crosses it over with a kind of military influence, sporty track and field kind of thing, which isn't a very concise way of saying it's clothes of the kind of people who can trace their family back to the um, Mayflower, perhaps. Does prep come from prep school originally? Maybe like, you know, preparatory school, those posh schools that were sort of breeding ground for those fancy colleges. Yeah, well, this is the interesting thing, because you and I first got into this because I think we'd spotted that Ralph Lauren was Jewish, but had kind of hidden it from the world. He seems, even though the clothes he makes, they don't have any kind of religious connotations, they seem very far away from the old country, Eastern European roots that Ralph Liefschitz, as he, he was actually born, could you know trace where his parents were from. But the actual term Ivy League and prep seemed to be popularised by Japanese fashion houses who were very influenced by what was going on in America after the Second World War and sort of looking for a new look for for youth culture. The Ivy Look has done really well in a podcast series called American Ivy, which was made by the um, 99% podcast people. I really recommend it. It's it's fascinating. It sort of takes something that seems very white in America and shows that it's really been created by Japanese, Black American, African American designers and musicians and Jewish fashion designers, creating something that seems really far away from those origins and something that is more elite and waspy. Martin Luther King, he's kind of got this like preppy look or you look at a picture of Allen Ginsberg and he's kind of got this preppy look or Jack Kerouac they all have a little bit of preppy in them there is something sort of rebellious about this and you don't have to be like a member of like the young republicans club to dress this way what do you think prep fashion means it's the sort of thing where people who go yachting would wear it the people who in a John Hughes film would be played by James Spader this kind of jumper wrapped around your neck It looks like money. It looks like old money as well. It's not even just about being wealthy. It's about being of a certain class. They're the mean ones in a John Hughes film. Yeah, yeah, totally. Their first car is a Jaguar. Yes. And and you don't really root for them. Listen, I'm getting really bored with this conversation, all right, Dwayne? You know, if you want your little piece of low-grade ass, fine, take it, you know. But if you do, you're not going to have a friend. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's really interesting because it kind of exposes, I think, a big difference between Britain and America, which is the word you use there, class. They don't really have a a rigid class structure in America. It's more about wealth and the sort of mobility that you can move up. But in Britain, it's some of the the oldest sort of money people you'll meet will dress in some barber jacket that they found in a dog's bed. And, you you know, but that could be someone who owns half of Britain. It's a very strange thing. In America, it's more about that kind of display of wealth 
wealth and being affluent. And clothes is a really, you know, obvious way of doing that. But I think my starting point was definitely Ralph Lauren. He's Jewish. He's from the Bronx. He grew up poor. Changed his name to Ralph Lauren when he was 16 because of um, anti-Semitism. I mean, Ralph Liebschitz isn't the best name for a fashion designer, is it? Let's face it. I did read that Ralph Lauren claimed that he didn't change his name because of anti-Semitism. Well, he says it's uh, more that because of the sound of Lipschitz in English, he didn't change it to Ralph Cohen or Ralph Schmulstein either, did he? He changed it to Ralph Lauren. So whether or not it was just the sound of the name and the connotations he wasn't keen on, it was hardly a, another Jewish name that he was leaping into adopting. So I think it's it still holds. Certainly. Yeah. He's becoming bigger and bigger. And they always pointed out that he was from the Bronx and his real name was Lifshitz. It was like, who's he to tell us how to dress up? He changed his name at 16 to fit in with the waspy elite that he aspired to from movies, from Manhattan, the sort of the place that he saw success. And the other really interesting thing is that he grew up really close to Calvin Klein. I thought quite similar, but actually there's a lot of difference between Ralph Lauren and Calvin Klein. But again, another young Jewish man from the Bronx wanting to make good. Calvin Klein is about sex, I've discovered, and Ralph Lauren is about the movies and Hollywood and exporting that to the world. Like the all these things you know you start with something quite specific and then you realize it's far deeper and more interesting what was your interest in this subject the thing that attracted me i think was this i don't know if it's irony or, or what you'd say it is between uh, the people behind these waspy clothing not only not being wealthy waspish people but being so famously excluded from these spaces it's not a case oh there aren't jews wealthy enough to be here or there jews were banned from the golf club they were banned from the tennis courts they were as good as banned from the elite educational establishments and yet the uniform that these places adopt in time are created by the people that were excluded by them i think this place is restricted wang so don't tell me you're jewish okay fine hey kid i'm al chervik i'm playing with drew scott today this is my guest mr wang no offense Oh, I can give me have a half a dozen of those Vulcan D10s and set my friend up here with the whole schmear. That seems to start with a guy called Jacobi Press, who came from Latvia in 1896. He moved to New York, I think to the Lower East Side. No, he actually moved to Connecticut, didn't he? And at that time, I guess the Ivy League schools, you know, Yale in Connecticut. Mm. He found a place that had quotas against how many Jews could go, but he could get in by selling clothes to those students. And he became, I guess, one of the early creators of the Ivy League look. And even, you know, that association with particular colleges in America. That brand is now called J Press and it's huge in Japan. And it actually, I checked out the clothes and I thought, I, I don't like Ivy League clothes. Actually, filtered through Japan and a different way of looking at it. It's actually really interesting. These kind of deconstructed jackets and quite loose trousers. I totally wear some of those clothes now. It all goes back to Jews not being allowed to own land because we couldn't own land, which was the thing for class effectively, owning land going back centuries. Jews would congregate in urban centres instead and have trades. So they would make clothes. And in the old country, not everyone was a, a tailor, but it was a very significant profession for Jews to have was tailoring. When Jews came from Eastern Europe to America, they brought these trades with them. Very nice. Thank you. What is it? It's a sewing machine. It's a sewing machine. It can work twice as fast. Like I say, not everyone was a trained tailor, but it was something that was very much in the culture there. As the textiles industry changed from people doing things at home, scale manufacturing and the family manufacturing, all the things in between and the kind of proto sweatshop and whatnot. This was a, a people who had these skills in abundance. And obviously that meant that they were, because of their position, initially working quite low down in these chains. And even, you know, Ralph Lauren was at Brooks Brothers as a salesman, I believe. But then when you start off in these lower levels in these companies, over time, 
with more numbers, with more experience, and as you settle in the country, you can start your own brand, start your own company, take over the company. Also, it's the fact that Jews were kind of forced into banking because Christians didn't want to do it. And that exposure to business as well comes through a head, I think, in the early 20th century in places like New York, where you've got skilled, creative people and others who know how to commerce. If you look at like Levi Strauss in the Wild West, creating an empire in a country that had very few historical brands. I think this is really interesting as well. Europe is about that kind of reverence to the past and America is about the new. So you had people like Levi Strauss creating these new heritage brands that in a country that had none. He joined up with a guy in the Lower East Side, didn't he? Um, Jacob Ufes from Latvia in 1854. And he invented denim jeans while sort of having too many rivets on trousers and joined up with Levi Strauss. Those kind of things really are amazing. What does this say about the American dream? This country that prides itself on individuality but really, I think Ivy the clothes is a lot about conforming and creating a uniform look that if you dress like this, you get the right house, you get the car, you know, you can have a success in life. And that seems very different to other countries value success. Well, I don't want to be the same as everybody else. That's why I'm a mod, see? I think there is a sense of conformity in American success and American conception of success. I know that there are outliers and weirdos and celebration of the unusual, but I feel that more in Britain, that we celebrate our weirdos and elevate our weirdos. And I think in America, it does feel that the biggest stars are a bit more down the line. It's a bit more conventional, maybe because the country's so big. I kind of think America is obscenely, absurdly big, and that explains a lot of its oddness. For something to translate, it has to translate over such a big area to so many different people I think it tends to flatten things out a bit whereas Britain's small enough that if something is massive in Manchester or in Leeds that's a big chunk of the country there already and then can retain its individuality but still become a nationwide phenomenon whereas if you look at the way American radio works it tends to be just the stuff that gets the rough edges worn off a bit that tends to translate and become those national phenomenon British bands that make it big in America it seems to be the stuff that is just that little bit more conformist it's Coldplay, isn't it? And U2 versus Sex Pistols and, and The Clash, you know, they had one hit in America and it was 10 years after they split up because it was on a Levi's advert. America is where British bands go to today. Obviously, the Beatles were incredibly massive in America, but you know yeah. they've had their last gig in San Francisco. The Pistols had their last gig in San Francisco before imploding. Something about America colliding with quirky individuality seems to destroy it. Well, let's start with Britain then. Let's talk about Jews and fashion. You know, you mentioned the Beatles. I know you're very interested in Brian Epstein. Tell me about that and that link to fashion. The Beatles were then just four lads on that rather dimly lit stage, uh, somewhat ill-clad, and the presentation was, well, left a little to be desired as far as I was concerned, because I've been interested in the theatre and acting 
for a long time. It actually does go back to prep in a way because the Beatles' most famous look is these four guys in quite sharp suits. You know, not old-fashioned suits for the time, but, but relatively modern, but suited and booted. And for all the, every time you watch a press conference from the time, people joking about their ridiculously long hair. It wasn't particularly long hair, quite neatly quaffed as well. These haircuts wouldn't pass military muster, believe me. Although I shouldn't talk, I, my hair's getting a little shaggy too. Better not get too close to you, they'll think I'm part of the band. I'm joking, of course. Shall we go in and I'll show you around? They were stylish, dapper guys. And then you look before they met Brian Epstein and they are these gorgeous, disgusting greasers playing in 56 state residency at the Kaiser Keller in leather and winkle pickers. And they just look amazing in a different way. But it was them meeting Brian who's wrestled them into suits because that's what you did then. Straight away, he got us some jobs, got us a bit more money then started getting us radio shows and things like that. And then, you know, as we go ahead, we got into our suits. You know, he talked us out of the leather suits. It was a bit sort of old hat anyway, all wearing leather gear. What became their memorable style wasn't really their style. It was something thrust upon them by their very young Jewish manager. This wasn't an old man telling these young boys how they should be dressing. This was someone who was of their generation as well. He was only a few years older than them. Yeah, I think Brian did a lot for creating what that Beatles style was. I wouldn't say the Beatles were prep, but there is a sort of slight touch there of, you know, young teenagers, just post-teenagers for, for a couple of them, wearing these aspirational clothes, like mods as well. Mods were quite rough as a subculture in the sense of you know how they acted and the music they listened to but also yeah. it's all about being stylish it's all about looking amazing not making much money but spending it all on your suit and your scooter to look the best you can look because it didn't matter that you were working class it didn't matter that you didn't have much you were going to look amazing and you were going to go out on Saturday night because yeah obviously with mods there's like Mr Fish Jewish fashion designer who played a big part of that but with someone like Brian Epstein he's a terrible businessman but I think his genius business move was to put the Beatles in respectable clothes because they were able to kind of navigate the British establishment and the sort of the corridors of the BBC or they could meet the Queen at the Palladium and they could do that but they could also straddle the avant-garde and the sort of the beatnik world that they named themselves after and that really I think was so crucial to their early success and you see that change I think with the death of Brian Epstein and the band in a way becoming a very different beast after that but he sort of established that foundation to what they're later becoming this cultural uh, phenomenon Brian was a, a beautiful guy, Brian Epstein, and he was a, an intuitive, theatrical guy, and he knew we had something he presented as well. You go from that to someone like Malcolm McLaren and Mark Bolan within just a few years. And Malcolm McLaren, probably one of the most subversive people in British fashion, obviously the founder of the Sex Pistols, co-founder of various fashion houses with his then wife, Vivian Westwood. You know, completely miles away from what the Beatles and Brian Epstein were doing, what, what he was doing with the Sex Pistols, but essentially using clothes to communicate something to young people the nature of selling clothes that looked like they were ruins and rags and then appealed with certain fetishistic aspects to them created a new kind of subversive clothing that I can only describe as anti-fashion. Again, it's not really preppy, is it? And I think our idea of preppiness, it's a bit like, I guess, what Peter York wrote about with the um, Sloan Ranger. It is a kind of yuppiness that you associate with the elites. And Howard Abrams, the great Olympic gold medalist in the 1920s, and they made that movie, uh, Chariots of Fire.
the look of that film, I think, can't be um, underplayed in having an influence on people like Ralph Lauren, who sort of have cited it as a big inspiration. And I, I like that his version of Britain comes from the movies. I think really what we're interested in is how people like Lorraine have created something that they've sold to the world. I think the movies is vital to it. You mentioned it a couple of times. And this interplay between clothes and the movies, the movies and clothes, I think it goes back to that aspirational thing. Your average teenager isn't going to be a film star, but they, they look up at the silver screen. They want to look like the people they're seeing there. So they dress like the people they're seeing there. And at the same time, it feeds back when you've got Ralph Lauren doing the clothes for something like the adaptation of The Great Gatsby. I've never seen such beautiful shirts before. <laughs> so it kind of goes back and forth. He watches these movies and makes clothes which are like the sort of things that a movie star would wear. And then in turn, you know, he ends up making clothes for the movie stars and then kind of goes on again and again. Yeah, and then Calvin Klein, what does he do then? He thinks, oh, young people, they're interested in sex. Obsession. Obsession from Calvin Klein. And really, if you take away the sex of his advertising, it's actually very boring conformist clothes. <laughs> it is marketing at the end of the day. How do you market a white T-shirt and blue jeans and make it something more interesting and actually represent something that people value? Clothes is not just something that you wear, but something that you're projecting about yourself. And this yeah. is where I go, you know, Bible studies time. So first, obviously, we didn't wear clothes. When God created Adam and Eve, where famously we weren't wearing any clothes. And it was eating from the tree of knowledge of uh, good and evil that you realise that you're naked and you have to wear clothes. So so the root of clothes is this treachery. God said not to do it and we did it. You know, we betrayed God. One of the words for clothing in Hebrew is it's beged, which has the same roots as treachery. If you look at stories involving clothing in the Bible early on, they all involve disguising yourself because that's what clothes do. And we're not born wearing clothes. Clothes aren't actually part of us. We choose what we wear. So we're projecting and disguising ourselves. So when Jacob deceives his father Isaac by pretending to be Asa by wearing his clothes, it'd be overstating it to say that, you know, all, all clothes are a lie but all clothes are a projection and a choice some people will claim that they don't oh you know i'm not into fashion i just wear whatever ian malcolm in jurassic park only wearing gray and black because it doesn't matter if i accidentally grab a gray trousers with a black top because you know clothes don't matter to me that in itself is a projection obviously it's a choice to say look at me i don't care clothes are all about making a statement about yourself and projecting even if you look at you know religious hasidic jews because i think the cliche of jews is that jews wear that type of garb mm. which itself is just what happened to be what people wore in a certain place in a certain time. Now it's worn, I think, as an intentional way of saying, I'm different. I'm separate from this other community. I want to be different and hold on to my traditional ways, for good or for ill. But that's, again, it's clothing to make a statement. It's saying, this is me. This is who I am. This is who I'm not. So that's how we kind of tie into prep. Those clothes are saying, I'm it. I'm fancy. I can get into your golf club. You know, I've got a yacht, which I go to on the weekend. Even if none of that's true, that's the image that you're projecting. Even if it's known that it's not true that's the image that's projected what is it about uh mixed materials or mixed mixed fabrics because isn't that punishable by death i don't think it's punishable by death when it comes to clothing rules in the bible there is think very little what people think of as rules about orthodox or culturally conservative dress it's not much actually there in the text i think men aren't meant to wear women's clothes and women aren't meant to wear men's clothes but i don't try to find the reason and the logic in the world that god designed the reason why a bird was given 
But on top of that, there is this very arbitrary rule it's called a shatnes is the uh, what's referred to, where you're not meant to blend wool and linen in the same garment. And no one says why. The Bible doesn't say why. Also, it says in the same bits in uh, Leviticus, you know, you're not meant to mix certain species of cattle together or different types of seeds. Is it symbolic of something? I mean, I've heard one argument that laws like that are in the Bible because they are completely meaningless and nonsensical. It's, uh, do you have enough faith to follow this very arbitrary rule? Oh, it's like um, Van Halen, Brown M&M's thing. And there I am in Sri Lanka, formerly Ceylon, at three o'clock in the morning, looking for 1,000 brown M&M's to fill a brandy glass or Ozzy wouldn't go on stage that night. David Lee Roth said that they always demanded a bowl of brown M&Ms just to test how well the venue was at following their safety protocol. Exactly. So it's not about the brown M&Ms. It's not about the woolen and the linen. It's saying, do you believe and are you going to follow everything? We should probably um, recap back on to Ralph Lauren and sort of do a little potted history of him because he is the core story, isn't he? You know, we've been talking about Jews inventing or certainly popularising prep. It was a thing before the Jews got there. Before preppy was even invented as a term, it was just I that's what it was but it was a very strict uniform effectively it was the college outfits that these people wore but I think it's the Jewish influence specifically Ralph Lauren and those that came after him who turned it from this dress for this niche subculture into something that's on the high street something that's in the department stores you know, Brooks Brothers and the people making clothes exclusively especially for this very small set that was one thing and then yeah it was Ralph Lauren who popularised it and made it into something bigger and I would say better with his influence. We call it the yacht set or the elite, I guess. Brooks Brothers were a brand that dressed the presidents of America and it wasn't really accessible to the common person. Well, I was reacquainted with Brooks Brothers. Brooks Brothers generously made me a tux to meet the president of the United States, the real one. And um, this tux was just gorgeous and it was very simple, classic, but it fit great with beautiful fabrics. What Jewish creators in the 20th century did really well was stand on the periphery, be on the outside, look at what's going on, and then do their own spin on it. And I think in a weird way, there's a link between Lou Reed and Ralph Lauren, not only being from the same sort of era and place, but being outsiders and wanting to put their mark on culture. Shiny, shiny, shiny boots of leather I really like that about this podcast that we can kind of celebrate people that you couldn't ever imagine having anything in common but it's not just about being Jewish it seems more than that and should we talk about Ralph Lauren and the brand he created Polo playing polo at the highest level achieving greatness it's a thrill like no other people think polo is a sport for the privilege but I'm living proof a champion can come from anywhere if you're going to name your brand after anything, to name it Polo just seems completely uh, miles away from his upbringing in, in the Bronx. Born 1939, Ralph Lifshitz, as we will keep pronouncing it badly, I'm sure, mm. changed his name to Ralph Lauren, age 16. Who knows if it was anti-Semitism or maybe he just aspired to, to transcend his roots and be accepted in, in a kind of waspy elite. He channels all these dreams about America uncritically into his work. I think sometimes he can't quite believe that it's happened. And sometimes he's still that little boy, not quite believing that I am Ralph Lauren. 
I'm not sure Ralph Lauren is such a strange name. It only an immigrant would make it up. Really. It's the sort of name that someone who isn't of that elite of that class might think is. And then Polo is exactly the same. It's like, well, what is it? It's like hockey, but let's times it by 10, put, put it on horses. So he starts in 1967 after leaving Brooks Brothers, where he was a kind of shop floor assistant, takes over an office at the Empire State Building, starts the Polo brand. And weirdly, ties is what they're famous for. Wide ties. Wide ties. I started out making these ties. My ties were handmade. They were special. My mom would sit there with a cousin of hers and they'd sew the labels into the neckwear. It's smart wear, mm. but with a twist to make it something different, making it modern, making it sexy. I don't know how doing making a tie a bit wider does all that, but that's what I'm told. This is what I kind of love and hate about the fashion world, but the scale of subversion is, is the bar is so low. <laughs> making a tie an inch wider <laughs> is some kind of shocking statement. Well, it worked for him. The idea is you get them in with the tie, so they have to spend a bit more on this expensive tie. Now your suit and your shirt is not going to really work with that tie, oh. is it? A year later, he gets his full collection. It was his foot in the door, the tie. It was part of a nefarious plan. What do you call, uh, is it Big Big Tie? Is that the, <laughs> <laughs> the name of this conspiracy? I knew how to do the ties, but I didn't stop from there. I just kept going. What am I going to wear with the ties? We're going to make a shirt, got to make a suit. I found the suit maker, make the shirt maker. All of a sudden, they're buying the ties. They're loving the ties. What else you make, Ralph? I have shirts. But you're right. And, you know, within two years, I think this is actually, you know, if we're doing the movie, this is the moment of the film where it all changes. 1970, he tells Bloomingdale's that I don't want you mixing my clothes. Because I think what the way department stores would put clothes, it's like, here are all the shirts, here are all the ties. But he said, no, I don't want you mixing my clothes with other people's. I want the Ralph Lauren section. And you go and here's all my items grouped together under my name. It doesn't seem particularly revolutionary now when even like John Lewis, do that. But in 1970, this was pretty punk rock, I guess. This is uh, his moment to kind of put his brand out there. A year after the first underground album. I like to imagine people have got it under their arm while they're yeah. browsing. The 500 people that bought it <laughs> are in Bloomingdale's. Every one of them was in Bloomingdale's. <laughs> and my skyrocketed from there and like you said great gatsby 74 the idea i guess of the world that he was trying to you know aspire to was the sort of the hollywood look he was actually dressed in robert redford in the movie so it kind of comes full circle you know nice crossover here 77 annie hall with Alan and diane keaton's characters both decked out and ralph lauren and i love what you're wearing oh you do yeah oh well it's uh this is a this ties a present from grammy hall who grammy Grammy Hall? Yeah, my Grammy. What are you kidding? Would you do grow up in a Norman Rockwell painting? Which is actually really subversive because she wore kind of mixed men's and women's clothes in that film. And that's the kind of Diane Keaton look, I think. If people close their eyes and think of Diane Keaton, it's the big tie and uh, the waistcoat and Mm. the flared trousers. But um, it is great. And, you know, we kind of don't think of it as as particularly risque for a designer to do costume. But essentially, that's what he was doing. Later on, Giorgio Armani did that with American Gigolo. Beautiful. 
But yeah, he was one of the first to sort of make that union, if you like. And then what he continued to do was distill the idea of the kind of American dream and elitism, bottle it up and sell it to the world. And then sort of in the 80s, with his out of Africa kind of inspired look, you know, it's really problematic stuff, but, but it, it worked. And the biggest markets now for Ralph Lauren aren't America or Europe, it's Asia. And that's really where the idea of what he's created, someone who's still alive, you know, who has his name on heritage brand, essentially from the new world, from America. That didn't really exist before Ralph Lauren. It's still incredibly uh, important, I think, to a lot of people. It was a Take Ivy written by, I believe it was uh, Kensuke Shizu and a few other people in the 60s, 1965. This is kind of designed as a guide for Ivy League style for young Japanese people. And that was where the kind of roots of that movement over there, where, like you say, it's retained popularity through to today. We make all of our blazers in New York City, in Manhattan, in the garment district. It's something that we're really proud of. And that's resonated so much in Japan, where Made in New York, Made in USA is very impactful. Something I want to touch on as well when we're talking about Ralph Lauren is that uh, you mentioned his uh, associate, Jeffrey Banks, I think his name was. Who worked for Calvin Klein as well. This idea of this interplay between black fashion and this prep fashion idea. And it was last year, actually, Ralph Lauren did a collection that I'm looking at actually right now in partnership with Morehouse College and Spelman College, which I believe are these traditionally black colleges. If you're looking at the pictures, they're just a type of prep, mm. but very much, here's the quote here from Ralph himself or whoever <laughs> writes his press releases. This collection expresses the spirited history, deep sense of community and legacy of timeless dressing at historically black colleges and universities. It's so much more than a portrayal of collegiate design sensibility. It's about sharing a more complete and authentic portrait of American style and of the American dream, ensuring stories of black life and experiences are embedded in the inspiration and aspiration of our brand. You know, we weren't talking about black America before. You were talking about this idea of the American dream and how it's bound up in preppy clothing and in what Rav Lauren's doing, selling the American dream. And he mm. hasn't mentioned Jews in this quote, obviously, because it wouldn't be relevant at all. But I kind of almost see a bit of a kinship there that this Jewish creator who was selling the American dream to a much bigger audience than the niche elite who are hoarding the dream to themselves. And here he's doing it with Black America as well, saying, you know, this is for everyone. This isn't about excluding people. It's about being inclusive and making it more accessible to more people. This isn't just for the small elite. This is for everyone. Yeah, you know, my great, great, great uncle Angus Griffin invented the game. So we're all clear on the rules then. No Jews and no Blacks. I mean, that's a really interesting area and it's explored by Jason Jules in his book, Black Ivy, which looks at the sort of instrumental role that particularly musicians played in promoting the Ivy look. He talks about Miles Davis in particular. But there's also Motown, very closely associated with a kind of evolution of the suit and the sort of smart way of dressing, a bit like the Beatles are doing in the UK, using that as a way to go, you know, all right, I think musically what we're doing is pretty revolutionary, but we're also well presented and we're going to go on TV and just appeal to a very broad audience.
I think all these things kind of came together to sort of take the stuffiness out of wearing suits and making it more youth orientated. Again, we're talking about class as well, because in Britain, I guess it goes back to much earlier, the new middle classes coming along when industrial revolution's taking off, price of clothes are coming down, you could dress for less, <laughs> but, you know, look like a dandy. So, you know, you get people like Benjamin Disraeli, who is one of the most fashionable men in Britain, but he's not an aristocrat. And this is, you know, in the early 19th century. But in America, you've got the class barriers coming down, particularly after the Second World War, where ex-servicemen were able to go to these elite colleges. And that completely transformed how people were dressing. And, you know, the birth of the teenager in the 50s. Disraeli's an amazing one. Before you mentioned him, I did not know how stylish this man was. I knew a little bit about the politics of things, but nothing about the man himself, really. I knew that he was born Jewish, that he became Anglican when he was, I think, 12. I think the reason for that was his father had a falling out with the synagogue, which to me is the most Jewish thing I could possibly imagine. Synagogue politics. People say oh, he wasn't Jewish because he converted, but there was an instance where one of his opponents in the house made a reference to his Jewish ancestry, and he said, "You know, yes, I am a Jew. When the ancestors of the right honourable gentlemen were brutal savages in an unknown island, mine were priests in the Temple of Solomon." So it's not something that he completely <laughs> disowned. You know, it's something that he did hold on to, and also. This other quote I read that he was walking down Regent Street wearing a blue suit and military trousers and black stockings with red stripes, just looking incredible. And this quote attributed to him is, the people quite made way for me as I passed. It was like the opening of the Red Sea. Even well-dressed people stopped to look at me. I should think so. So it's not just people looking and staring. It parted like the Red Sea. What an illusion yeah. to make this. I love how he compared himself to Moses. <laughs> he didn't change his name, did he? No, exactly. I think in some ways he's the opposite. He's someone who technically had an out, you know, technically he's not Jewish by the book because he's converted but kept his name was happy to acknowledge it in the house in public even though we have amassed great capital and even though we have established an industry with no parallel in the world yet all these mighty creations are as nothing compared to the invisible customs which shape our lives I didn't know about this but there was another brand called Perry Ellis also from New York, similar sort of time frame as Ralph Red. But Perry Ellis wasn't Jewish. He was very much like a waspy American. But he employed two college freshmen, or they were friends at college. It was Mark Jacobs and uh, Isaac Misraki. I think mm. Isaac Misraki went first working for him before starting his own fashion brand. But it was Mark Jacobs he hired in the late 80s. I think to be head of women's wear. And he kind of did the sort of toned down Ivy League look of Perry Ellis. But then 92 came out with the grunge look, which was sort of inspired by mother honey and nirvana inspired by seattle's grunge rock scene mark jacobs for perry ellis doesn't take it literally jacobs translates that seattle spirit into fragile clothes that fit the mood and the moment we talk about, you know, big tie causing a bit of a, a moment. I think sending Kurt Cobain-inspired fashion really was quite an exciting moment in the life of Perry but it led to Mark Jacobs getting fired and then going off and really becoming one of the most important fashion designers in the world. I feel very strongly about people's right to choose and to decide for themselves and to express their individuality, not only in clothing and fashion, but in everything. So I just have to express that in the medium I work in. I like that two New York Jews got their start at this waspy brand and kind of outgrew it very quickly. Perry Ellis, uh, looking up uh, a year after Terrence of Fire came out, he had his uh, Terrence of Fire collection. You know, there's another kind of connection there between these different worlds. Yours are the archaic values of the prep school playground. You deceive no one but yourselves. 
I believe in the pursuit of excellence and I'll carry the future with me. Saying about aspiration and bars, I do think that's key to all of this. Reading about J. Crew, you know, the same with Ralph Lauren's clothes were all there as one man's clothes, here's an outfit rather than here's your ties, here's your shoes, here's your socks, here's your jackets. The catalogues, apparently, it went from having here's someone wearing a coat, here's someone wearing a coat, here's someone wearing some shoes to having scenes. The J. Crew catalogues were quite groundbreaking in showing you these scenes of four or five people having a picnic or what have you. This idea that you're selling an aspiration, you're not selling a jacket, you're selling a lifestyle i look over and she's reading j crew <laughs> it's so weird because i was such a huge j crew mm-hmm. person then too mm-hmm. so, you know, maybe it's an unfair cliche but in britain anyway i get the sense of this jewish middle class aspirationalism firing to be like the slightly posher than you white english people so this idea of we don't quite belong but if mm. we can just maybe wear these clothes and spend a little bit more money here and try and do that then we'll be like one of them you feel Comfortable here? Oh, Oh. so at home. Quite comfortable. Let me say, the uh, golf course is magnificent, too. You know, I'm fairly new to golf. Um, Polo was my game. We've mentioned Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren, Mark Jacobs, Isaac Misraki, but there's also Donna Karen and Diane von Frostenberg, mm. who was a child of a Holocaust survivor. I think her mother, from what I understand, used her reparation money to buy a designer coat because when she was surviving through Germany, she had no coat. And this idea of fashion being something not only you aspire to, but really, you know, it's going to save your life. My mother was a prisoner. She was in concentration camp at the age of 22 during the war. She went to Auschwitz, she went to Ravensbrück, and then the Americans came and they were put in the hospital. She took that and created, I think, the 70s, very synonymous with the disco look. It's a real established brand, just like DKNY and Donna Karen. It's a way of power dressing. The new drape, putting the drape into the sleeves of a dress, the powerfulness of larger sleeves, it's really empowering the woman for carrying all that weight she has on her shoulders. Again, you know, New York is playing a central role in shaping these people and their visions for their brands. And that's what people are buying, really, because there isn't much to make these clothes look different. But if you're selling a dream, which is what American fashion does really well. You know, we mentioned about these people coming from Europe where they were also getting a sense of business. And I think good business can be an art form. And that's only something I've realized in the past few years. But there's something very creative about how these people approach marketing and selling an idea. You see, sales one, collect underpants. Sales two, sales three, profit. I did want to mention one other New Yorker, someone called Lisa Birnbach, who wrote a book called The Official Preppy Handbook. A satirical thing. Apparently over here in England, we had a similar book, Guide to the Sloan Rangers. The official, York, Sloan yeah, Ranger, yeah. The official Sloan Ranger Handbook. In America, they had The Official Preppy Handbook. Which, which came first? 1980 for The Official Preppy Handbook. 82 was Peter York, Sloan Rangers. Well, so. okay. The Official Preppy Handbook was number one of the bestseller lists for 38 weeks. So, you know, this is a, a publishing phenomenon. This isn't just like a jokey stocking filler that you've got there. I love this idea that as well as Jews being so instrumental to the rebirth of Preppy as this mass market style, you've got a Jewish woman here, someone there on the outside kind of almost picking apart and mocking gently this idea while at the same time popularising it more. In the best of all possible worlds, we can all be Preppies. And I really mean that. We can all be well-dressed, we can all be well-spoken, we can all have good manners and play a good 
round at the tournament at the club. That would be my dream and world peace. It's not really about the clothes. It's about acceptance in British and American elite circles. And then as a sort of interesting outcome of that was <laughs> sort of surpassing it in terms of building empires. I think what wearing ivy does, you won't be able to get into the country club in 1970 just because you're wearing the clothes. So I don't think it's a sense of giving people a passport into these worlds. I think it's a sense more of giving you the feel that you could, even if you can't. And then in the process of mass marketing it, more like trampling that barrier altogether if you make mm. it that it's not that special to wear these clothes and to look this way that everyone can do it that jews can do it that black americans can do it then you're taking away its power if you're making that style accessible and popular you sort of strip it of the sense that it is only for the elite and mm. in that way it's quite liberating the phil caddyshack the rodney dangerfield character is basically i think how waspy america pictured what would happen if we let the jews in if we let them into harvard if we let them into our golf club our tennis club or the yacht club in a way his character sort of heightens that fear hey everybody we're all gonna get late <laughs> I think successful outsiders like Ralph Lauren, who I want to celebrate as one of the great 20th century subversives, are just brilliant at exposing the vulnerability in the elites. They find areas where they're complacent, where they've taken their eye off the ball and moving in and exploiting that. And I think that's really what the Polo brand has done so well to go from very humble beginnings, very quickly go, all right, I'm going to create an empire here. And yeah, let's celebrate that along with our obsession with Lou Reed and Joe Rooms. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> fashion it sounds like a frivolous thing and it's not important but i think it's important that people express who they are